0: afternoon everybody and welcome to the next episode of the biodiversity podcast by teasels and i'm really looking forward to this uh, this podcast because i'm sitting down with donald mcintyre from emma's gate seeds hi donald hello dan hi how are you
1: i'm fine thank you it's, it's 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 nice to be talking with you
0: fantastic well we've talked on the phone and now we're seeing each other for the first time so um which is really great so Donald, do you want to give us a bit of um, background on yourself, um, sort of your, your past career, and give a better background on Emma's Gate Seeds? Because um, for the uninitiated, it's quite a, quite a good brand of seed, and you've done a lot of great work over the last, is it 40 years now? It's 40 years.
1: 40 years,
0: yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. If you, if so if you can condense 40 years into a, uh, a lovely sound bite that would be a uh, few soundbites, that'd be great.
1: Well, I, I wish I was 40, but I'm 71. <laughs> so it's going to be uh, impossible to, within an hour, com- yeah, give you my background, <laughs> but generally I'm, I'm a country boy and I grew up uh, hunting wildflowers with my mum and went on to study botany at uh, at A-level. And then at university, at a whole string of universities uh, London, Glasgow, Reading, and then I did research on plant breeding. Okay. And uh, eventually I thought I'd have a go because I was always interested in seeds and genetics and the countryside and conservation mm. and wildflowers. So I was well aware back in 1980 that uh, our countryside was losing its wildflowers. But, uh, so I, I, was, I was down and out in London, um, living in the East End, Woodford Green, and uh, trying to make a living painting and decorating. But I had this idea that I might, I might just start collecting weeds. And I walked around the wasteland of East London, which are really interesting areas, and hand collected in paper bags, seeds of a range of uh, species. And that's how it all started. I just put together a list uh, of the seed I had at the end of the season and mailed it out to a number of seed companies. And it was different at that time because nobody was selling what they considered to be weeds. (laughs) Garden plants, (laughs) vegetables, agricultural seeds, but not not wild seeds. Uh, So there's a lot of interest. um, That really kicked me off one thing led to another and that was in 1980 mm. and uh, it's it's been a very slow and gradual process of uh, expanding the business since then it's now it is essentially a farming business yeah. and i always wanted to be a farmer but i've managed to combine botany with farming mm. and we have about uh, what, 750 acres under a uh, single species cultivation, native species, all native species, yeah. most of which is in Norfolk. Um, uh, and I've been helped along the way by the Norfolk County Farms Estate. Norfolk has a good and large and indeed growing farms estate where the County Council provides startup farms for young people wanting to get into into farming. And they, they helped me along the way, right from the beginning. And now we've got quite a large East Anglian farm on which we, which we grow native seeds. Also a farm down in Somerset, near Bath, where I'm talking from. Yeah, yeah. So
0: that's interesting. So, you, um, so, what, so you've got the, 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 the farms in Norfolk and the, the farm just outside of Somerset. So um, there's different soil types there, isn't it? So you get, a, you get a, uh, perhaps a different conditions that will favour certain species, is that correct?
1: yeah so uh the, the difference in the soil type is quite quite pronounced in uh we're on the southern tip of the cotswolds and it's uh, soil over limestone and the soil is rocky uh stony limestone and high ph about 8.5 yeah. none of the fields are level and the fields are small. It's essentially uh, an area of mixed farming, so there's a lot of grassland, woodland, and arable land. Mm. In Norfolk, it's completely different. It's uh, the drained fens uh, between Wisbeach and market in Kings Lynn. In that triangle there, yeah. uh, it's uh, silty land. It's silt. Uh, it's uh, the silt varies from farm to farm, but it's it's essentially a deep uh, uh, neutral pH about 6.5, sometimes higher, maybe up to 7.5, completely stone free and the uh, the water table is managed, so there's never a, a drought and there's never flooding in the winter, so the internal drainage board, uh, while we don't have too much sea level rise, managed to keep the fens, uh, the water level levels managed. Mm. So the two, the two locations allow us to grow a different range of species. Some species do not thrive in the fens, but will grow well on the stony, high pH, calcareous limestone that we have in the Southwest and vice versa. Wow.
0: So I want to go back a, a few steps because you, you said back in the, um, you know, in the 1980s that you, were, you, know, you saw that um, the agricultural land was, well, largely devoid of wildflowers so can you give us a bit of background on that because you know you spotted that sort of 40 years ago but now we're in i don't know we haven't progressed i don't know have we progressed in those 40 years in terms of maintaining the sort of native flora within our agricultural lands
1: so in the the post-war years the the common market uh, subsidized the improvement of land improvement yes improvement of lands uh, to increase uh, food production and uh, to intensify food production that involved drainage removal of hedges application of fertilizers and pesticides and the modernization of the whole farming process bigger tractors bigger combines the consequence of that was that uh, uh, wild areas were eliminated Um, the there's some very good data about uh, lowland meadows, which were once um, very, very widespread. Uh, but they have been reduced now to only 3% of their former extent. So 97% have been destroyed. And that's because of uh, plowing, uh, uh, spraying with herbicide, uh, application fertilizer, mm. and the botanical interest the biodiversity and everything that's associated with that goes, and you end up with a, what's called um, an improved grassland, which is essentially dominated by ryegrass. as it's a ryegrass grassland. So so that's the the overwhelming um, habitat that we have in the countryside uh, today. Now the the rate at which those grasslands, those native grasslands have been lost, has declined in recent years. Mm. But that's only because we've only got 3% left to lose. There was a statistical quirk. The rate, the rate of loss was greatest at the beginning, and uh, as land was uh, converted to intensive agriculture, the amount remaining for conversion became less and less. Mm. So, in other parts of the world where uh, agriculture is not so advanced, then you do have rapid rates of loss of native vegetation. But in In the British Isles, that rate of loss has now stabilised, simply because there's nothing more to lose outside of protected areas. Mm. Uh, Areas of outstanding natural beauty, SSSI, Sites of Special Scientific Interest, National Nature Reserves, those areas are protected. So protected areas cannot be improved. Most of the other agricultural land has been improved. There's not much left that hasn't been improved. So okay,
0: so so with that, so you know, when you say it's improved, um, what is the process to kind of regenerate that? So say you've you, you've, you've had a, you've had a, you know, you've had a wildflower-rich grassland which has been improved, had loads of fertilizer on it, the ryegrass is you know has taken over, and sort of really uh, become a monoculture, if you like. So can you kind of dispel perhaps rumors that well not rumors, but dispel, give a bit of advice on perhaps how people can sort of bring back those wildflower rich grasslands? Um, so the, the,
1: the countryside, the lowland uh, countryside is divided roughly into grassland, arable land and woodland in the British Isles. And the, 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 the method that this is within agriculture is slightly different within landscaping and a gardening set, yeah. garden setting. But within in the farming setting, there, there are two approaches. One is if you have arable, which you wish to return to native grassland, then you're starting off with bare soil and you would sow onto that soil using standard agricultural practices, practices a complete mixture of grasses and flowers. Yeah. And then uh, that, that, that's, that's called species-rich grassland creation. Yeah. There's also another way you can do that, and that's just turn away from it and set aside. We did have a set-aside scheme uh, back in the, in the 90s, which, which uh, farms were required, when we had food mountains, where farms were required to uh, set aside 10% of their arable land, and that land was just left. Mm-hmm. And natural regeneration yeah. will result in grass cover. And without cutting, eventually it will result in woodland yes so natural regeneration is another option but where the species that you're interested in reintroducing are no longer present in the surrounding countryside you you cannot expect natural generation to give rise to a vegetation type including those species for example cowslip uh, or pasc flowers you have near uh, near you in Cambridge and uh, all the the, the whole suite of uh, plants which were once common in the countryside will not come back naturally if you just allow natural regeneration to take its, uh, take its course. Yeah. At least not within a reasonable time scale. If you were to set aside for maybe 500 years, <laughs> you would get back, you would get back to some of the uh, uh, species with chalk grass that you have uh, say uh, a third Third Field Common near near to Cambridge, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it does take a very long time. You can get there quicker by introducing the species, and so you put in the seed mix. Uh, we have areas of the countryside which are uh, covered in um, uh, improved grassland, dairy, um, a, a beef production, and sheep grazing areas. You can actually diversify the existing grassland and that's, that's a different, uh, a different technique. So you do not destroy the grassland that's there. There's a lot of, uh, it, it's not quite as straightforward as I'm going to make it out, yeah. <laughs> but actually that by a process of various agricultural non-destructive techniques, you add species to the existing grass and restore its diversity. And that's a very useful technique because it doesn't require the use of herbicides or ploughing. Yes. Some of the some of the grasslands in the in the southwest uh, are, are, are more devoid of wildlife. That, um, the dairy grasslands are, tend to be more devoid of wildlife than the arable gra, um, arable uh, cereal land that you have in the east in East Anglia. So mm-hmm. there's a lot that can be done on grassland. Diversifying existing grassland or sowing into arable land and creating uh, species rich grassland. So, so, yeah, g- gardens are a bit different and uh, so is landscaping. Well, this is the thing because I, I,
0: it's quite interesting because the more I look at it, the more I feel that, yeah, doing, you know, doing, creating wild areas, wild meadows in gardens is is important to a certain extent but again if we want to genuinely increase biodiversity and genuinely want to um, stop the slide of ecological collapse we do have to take on a landscape scale don't we so it's um you know more agricultural on a, on a larger
1: scale and on a more joined up scale would, would you agree uh, uh the, the impact is greater on a larger scale mm. and it is through change in policy which has a huge impact at a landscape scale, on on our visual landscape, on the biodiversity and on the quality of the water, the quality of the air, um, and all these factors. But every little bit helps. Even if it's a square meter, a window box, it will still attract you know, there's new parts of flowers. It will still attract insects. Um, a small garden can can make a contribution. Uh, so it, there's nothing too small. But obviously, the larger the area, then the bigger impact it's going to have overall mm. and the, 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 the there is i mean the world is a big place, and it 's not just the british isles there's a movement worldwide to to restore nature and for all the benefits that that can bring yeah very very much
0: so 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 when you so with the um, with the seeds that that you that you produce um do you want to talk a bit more about the sort of the native flora and the the connection between the native flora and the native fauna and how there's that connection between you know the flora and native flora and sort of the native um, flora as well because there is a there's a perhaps a disconnect sometimes where people think talk about pollinators and we talk about native flora and sometimes it gets lost that a lot of these plants form part of the food web as well.
1: Mm. The, uh, uh, um, plants are part of an ecosystem. It's, it, it's, it's, it's the whole of life. So they're, they're right, not quite, but they're right down at the bottom of the, um, the triangle that, that, uh, represents the ecosystem. They're, they're the, the basis of the food chain and they support obviously, um, Invertebrates, bugs, and uh, and the bugs support birds and the plants also support us. And the, the pollinator services that are uh, uh, provided by insects are very important to agriculture. So that the, the whole the ecosystem, we're part of the ecosystem, we're fairly near the top. Uh, um, but plants, plants without the foundation provided by plants, there's no life on earth. Because
0: uh, it's something I want to stress, because I think sometimes it can get lost, especially we within the garden realm, that it's it's just a nice aesthetic. It's just mm. we'll have we'll have a nice meadow because that looks nice and that's very pretty. But it's but it's a lot deeper than that, and it needs to be a lot deeper than that. It's kind of like like we've been talking about. It's, it's that restoration of yeah. of of a, of a food web rather than just a bit of I don't know fancy uh, horticultural wallpaper.
1: So our native flora is 1,400 species, mm. and those species will, will support. Um, I I, I, probably, I don't. I'm talking up to my head the number of invertebrates, but it, it's going to be about um, uh, it's going to be about 50,000 invertebrate species. I would imagine, mm. uh, supported by by that 1,400 plants, and there and likewise they support a whole range of other. Um, uh, other fauna, and um, you you could take you could just take uh, take take one plant for example, um, say cornflower, mm-hmm. which is a wild cornflower, it's blue. It's very easy to grow. It's very pretty, and that that requires pollination. It doesn't set seed without being pollinated, and it'll be pollinated by hoverflies and, and um, solitary bees and bumblebees. It's it's, it's a species that. that uh, uh, provides for a lot of pollinator species, and it's a rewarding plant. It provides a reward to the pollinator, which is uh, nectar and honey. Mm. And the nectar and the honey is taken back to the the, the wherever where the bees or the hoverflies have their brood, and is fed to the brood. Um, so, so, so again, can you just d- dispel something as
0: well? Because again. It seems to come up in every podcast. Can you just clearly explain that there's more bees than the honeybee? Because again, everybody seems to think the only type of one there's only one type of bee, yeah. and it's the honeybee. Could you again just underline that uh, yeah. point that there is
1: a the, honey, of... the honeybee is not it is the honeybee is, is is actually our most abundant bee, but it is not native to the British Isles. It's 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 a cultivated bee and it's abundant because it's uh, it has a commercial purpose in production of honey. Uh, we have 50 or just 48 uh, species of um, bumblebee and bumblebees are they they're, they're larger than the honeybee and they they have a round body they are uh, they're early pollinators because of their body size being larger they warm up quicker in the spring so that they pollinate earlier than honeybees. Uh, and then there's a whole range of solitary bees, uh, another probably a hundred species which are fairly, they're not very showy and they're really quite small. And they live in the ground in um, little tunnels, but they, they collect nectar and honey. So all of these bees collect and depend upon nectar and honey exclusively that's the only food source yeah unlike butterflies i might add which collect nectar and honey but that's only the adults the uh the um the larvae of butterfly the caterpillars mostly live off of maybe stinging nettles or grasses but other other uh, other other food other than nectar and honey but all of our bees have to have nectar and honey Grasses do not produce any nectar or any honey. No. So, if you if you want if you want to attract bees, bumblebees, solitary bees, honeybees, you have to have flowers. Grass will not provide any nectar or honey. Well, yeah, our, our concept of weeds is changing and has changed in my lifetime. Uh, it depends on it's an individual thing as well. It depends what. What problem you happen to have in your garden, then that then that's the worst weed that they could possibly be. Mm. Uh, farmers generally, and historically, not so much now, but in the past, have thought of every plant, other than grass, or <laughs> as a weed. Yeah. Mm. It, um, and equally, wildlife is, if you can't if you can't produce it into a saleable product, it's it yeah it has no place on the farm. Mm. So. There is a tendency in the past to think of all wildlife as unwelcome and harmful, but things have changed. Times are changing, and our definition of what is weedy has narrowed quite a lot. There's even the debate about invasive aliens, and they're not as bad as as people originally thought. You mentioned nettles. Well, that's that's probably the second most invasive species in the British Isles, but it is native. Mm. And
0: because as you're talking, it, it, it is a debate. Perhaps we should we should have a bit more because Himalayan uh, Himalayan um, balsam. Well, it's a pain. It's a pain in the waterways, but it's a great source of nectar, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I, yes.
0: I slap my own hand by saying that, but it is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So the, 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 I mean, there's a lot of research been done on Himalayan balsam. Empatian's glandulifera is very attractive. It, it's, uh, uh, it, it's a good, um, provides pollinator services. Uh, but it's not been very easy to find good, strong, hard evidence that it is a harmful, invasive alien. It is not native, mm. and it grows well. But to actually... Find evidence that it is harmful to our native flora or to anything, well, there. people have not have, have failed there. There's, there's, no, there's no data that, that actually shows it's harmful. It's less harmful than the stinger nettle. The stinger nettle is quite invasive, mm. and even really, are stinger nettles that harmful? So, yes, there's a broadening out and a, a reduction of a change in our definition of what is weedy and what is harmful. In the end, well, what really is harmful? Diversity is good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's always our, it's always us putting on our we're making a judgment on nature, so we're just kind of we're putting our opinion on just nature and Absolutely. we're we're we labeling it whatever yeah. way we kind of see fit. But but have uh, you told a have you told a butterfly that's a weed? You know, have you told a butterfly that's harmful? Have you told a you know foraging? You know foraging bee that uh yeah, that uh that um that nectar sac is a bad thing i guess you don't so yeah but i guess i, I it must be it must be nice in a way that you know in, in your in your working life that you've seen stuff that was considered weeds um you know back then and now coveted and there is a um you know, there is a, I guess, well, I guess there is a resurgent in in, in, in in Wildflower Meadows as, as an aesthetic, but also as a, um,
1: you know, as, a, as, a as a necessity. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, it had changed. I, I mentioned I was uh, collecting seed in the east end of London at the beginning. Mm. And I recall walking down the street picking, I don't know what it was, dandelions, out of a crack in a pavement or something, but collecting the seed. And this guy came up to me and he said, what, what hell are you doing? You're a crazy man. I said, I'm collecting, I'm collecting seed. He said, you're nuts. He said, you're absolutely nuts. You're wasting your time. Go away. <laughs> but now we, we, we look upon the dandelion differently. It's one of the top pollinator, it, the services it provides is, is enormous. It's, of the pollinator provision, it's way up there on the charts. Okay, so 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 tell the listeners. So because we we uh,
0: we're aware of what it you know it, it does above ground, but it also ha- also has for some gardeners an annoying tap root. But the tap root also plays a, a a fantastic role in uh, nutrient recycling as well. That's correct, isn't it? Where it brings
1: is it mag magnesium up to the yeah yeah. yeah. So uh, grasses are fibrous and surface rooting in the top 10 centimeters of the ground. And dandelion has a taproot, which will go down a meter. Wow. And so it can exploit the nutrients down through that layer. Mm. And when it does so, it also spreads fine roots laterally. Uh, So it has the ability to, to draw nutrients from deep down. It has the ability to survive drought because it's drawing moisture from deep down. And it's also depositing carbon throughout the soil profile when those fibrous roots roots die. Mm. And on a landscape scale, that's a really important contribution to carbon storage. Mm. Grass in in our parks only stores carbon in the top 10 centimeters, but species-rich grass will store it throughout the profile down two meters. So the conversion from park uh, pure grass to species-rich grassland gives a, a net, huge net gain in storage of carbon. Not quite so much as planting trees, but a lot, a lot. Yeah, well, but it's, it's interesting you're raising that because again, it's
0: when we talk about carbon storage, the only thing that, you know, it gets the press is we must plant a thousand trees billion trees you must do that and that's the only way carbon is sequestered but it's it's you know it's obviously not but it's it's really it's really interesting so it brings up um uh uh sort of an interesting discussion on how plants work as individuals and how that dynamic of plant communities within a meadow and how there's that interaction as well because um yeah. Do you want to give a bit, bit of background on perhaps if somebody wanted to in a, uh, establish? We've talked about it on a sort of a landscapes uh, scale, um, but I guess what I want to get across is people think that you buy a packet of seeds, you chuck the seeds down, and within two minutes you've got a wildflower meadow, and that's a, perhaps a you know <laughs> not as easy as that. So um, for, for people out there that want to know more about meadows. What is a sort of a a kind of a life cycle, so from sort of seeding it to the the short-term management, the medium-term management to perhaps long-term management?
1: Well, you're right that there's a difference between um, tending plants in the garden and tending and creating a meadow. Uh, Garden plants are tended as individuals. You garden the individual, you look after the individual, but a meadow is a community and you don't look after the individuals, you look after the community as a whole. Mm. And plants, are, you have biennials, you have annuals, biennials and perennials. Uh, a meadow is primarily composed of perennial species. The annual species, if you sow if you sow an annual mixture with your perennial meadow, mm. they will flower in the year after sowing. So, yeah. so if you sow in the, in the autumn they'll flower in the following june if you sow in you can sow in the spring and the annuals will flower june july but if you sow later that year you you end up having them flowering the following year but if you sow at the same time the meadow mixture with the perennials they will they will be vegetative they won't flower in the first year after sowing and some species take five six seven eight nine years to flower after sowing so there is there's a succession of species that appear over time you sow your meadow you have the f- annuals flower first then the biennials like dorcas uh, wild carrot mm. and then the, the fast establishing perennials like oxide daisy then the medium fast um uh, perennials like uh, knapweed, and then the slow establishing perennials like cowslip. sip, all, all over that, say that eight to ten first eight to 10 years, mm. the species appearing and flowering. And so over time, over that period, the diversity increases, the number of species you have each year becomes greater and greater and greater, until you get to about year 10. Mm. And then it, it settles down but it still doesn't look like the real thing that you might find at feel Common. Um, That takes a bit longer. And what creates that is the second, third, and fourth generation of those perennials interacting with one another in the community. Mm. By managing the community over a long period of time, it takes about 20 years to get something that, that looks fairly, to most people, will look fairly like the real thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot to pick
0: out of there. There's a lot to pick out of there because um, you've mentioned about the, the annuals. Now, I'm recording this from Cambridge. So what, what you'll see on the podcast underneath, there is a link. So, you, so there's a link to, uh, to the pictures of the, uh, the meadow you sowed outside of King's College in Cambridge so what you use correct me if i'm wrong what you use there is you use the annuals as what we we, perhaps you would call it the cover crop is that what you call it so that's right yes so i forget his name now mr Coggill, the head gardener there so they've so they say they put the both mixes on the annual and the perennial so the annual gave an absolutely tremendous uh tremendous show um so they've harvested that this year so the perennials will be up next year and they will be they'll be showing so it's quite interesting so you talk about that interaction so you've got the biennials and then you've got the perennials what 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 things are when you say they're interacting what things are at play there is that nutrient availability is that more that say certain species do better in a wet year certain species recede in a dry year what 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 a, what are kind of General interactions are going on within
1: that community. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the interaction will vary uh, according to the conditions in the site. Uh, so there'll be different situations, different locations will have different interactions. Mm. Essentially, the um, the annuals they they uh, they require open ground. Yeah, and they they do they're, they're, so, so open ground provides a situation where the factor of uh, competition is low. Yeah. They are replaced in time by the biennials and perennials, uh, but they are competing, that's not open ground then, it's a closed sward, And when you have that situation, competition becomes really important. So those individual plants are competing one with another some are helping each other. Some are actually harming their neighbours. But they're competing one with another Absolutely. for space to survival.
0: Interesting. So when you said helping one another, are you alluding to a symbi- an actual symbiotic relationship from the roots or is that just a turn of phrase that you used?
1: That's yeah, Yes, the, the, there's the complex interactions between... Uh, uh, um, mycorrhizal fungi and um, and 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 higher plants, so flowers. Yeah. And uh, the the we the organic matter in the soil is um, is degraded and digested by the fungus, but the fungus is linked to the the roots of the the higher plant, maybe it's an oxidase or knapweed, and in in that process. The, the roots draw sugars from the, the fungus that's in the soil. So that's, it's, it's not just one benefiting and the other uh, being um, exploited. There's usually a mutual uh, benefit to both in, in that sort of partnership. Yeah, yeah. And there's all there's the and then there's very complex, that all happens below ground. And then above ground, there's complex interactions as well. You're, obviously you have the obvious interaction between uh, pollinators and flowers mm. because that's usually, but not always, a reward situation where the flower provides the butterfly with, say, nectar and the nectar provides the flower with pollen from a plant it's previously visited. So so there, there's a mutual, mutual gain on both sides. Mm. But you do have you have situations when they're uh, <laughs> with pests and diseases where there's not necessarily a mutual relationship. It's ex- exploitative. So all these interactions are going on all the time. And, even, and and the plants are interacting one with another, they might be out topping each other to see who can get to the highest and get to the light. So there's competition uh, for light, there's competition below ground for moisture. And there's this competition uh, for nutrients as well. So this is it's extremely complicated. A uh, community is, is, is very, very vibrant and uh, changing over time. And what's important is to just let it happen. And because you manage it, but not as you would manage a traditional garden. So you will lose some species, some will gain. So the, the, there's always fluctuation and change from over time.
0: Uh, I mean, I love this. I love this because again, it's trying to get the message out there that it's to sit on your hands and let it happen and not try and control and to watch it. And it's a case of management, not maintenance. It's it's trying to get that message out there that it's a totally different um, it's a totally different way to look at it, isn't it? And and can get lost in certain people that it's you, you can't control this and
1: oh. well, the the best bit of management advice I give to people if you don't know what to do don't do anything
0: <laughs> <laughs> as you're saying that I could just but um, <laughs> we're nature we're, I don't know, we're, uh, again, we're in perhaps
1: an, an I mean, it, it stands to reason activity in the garden might be, might be putting down slug parrots, cutting the lawn, uh, putting a bit of uh, herbicide down, digging over a patch of soil. All of these are harmful to wildlife. Mm-hmm. So, if, if you can reduce the amount of activity in the garden, you'll have more wildlife. Mm.
0: So to that, so, so to that point as well. So you you were saying that um, you know it's a long term process. So from broadly speaking, you know you have this sort of naught to 0 to seven, naught to ten window of trying to establish a you know a biodiverse, species rich grassland. So. Again, generally speaking, so um, the sort of the medium-term management. Because again, I just I want to. Sorry if I'm you know telling you to you know telling people how to suck eggs. But it's really interesting that again that dichotomy between managing a garden where there's input, 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 and there's fertiliser and there's and there's you know lots of um, lots of input. But generally speaking, you know what type of what type of management would you would you be undertaking when managing a
1: managing a meadow well, there's, there's there's two there's two there's two stages one is actually sowing the meadow and then there's the maintaining it yeah and the, 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 when it comes to sowing the most important thing in a garden situation is to have a, a weed free medium fine firm seedbed. it doesn't matter the time of the year and to sow this on the surface and firm it firm the seed in that's the most important thing With management, the single most important operation is the one cut per year. And you you can vary the time because the timing is important. Generally speaking, people will cut too late. Mid-July is the optimum time for maintaining biodiversity in a garden setting. Mm. You can leave it later or you can do it earlier. But that one cut... Is the most important thing you do, and then if it's if you have uh, a weed problem or you perceive a weed problem, <laughs> <laughs> selectively cut those weeds. Mm. You don't spray them. You don't even need to pull them out, but just selectively cut, and with a scythe, a scythe is a good way of doing that.
0: I can, yeah. So yes, no. So is a very good way to do it. So I, would, I wanted to just go back a couple of steps. So you said the timing of the cut's really important. So say you're cutting. Um, again, sorry to t- telling you how to suck eggs, but you're cutting too early. Say you cut mid June, or say you cut mid September. What is that? What, what's what's actually happening there? So say you cut too late. What would be the sort of what would
1: be detrimental by by cutting too late? So if it, it depends what your objective are objectives are if your objective is to reduce the nutrients return to the soil the optimum date for cutting is Midsummer's Day which is the 25th of June and that is the traditional date on which traditional hay meadows would be cut. If you cut later you remove less nutrients however the invertebrates benefit from a later cut and you might get an extra generation of meadow brown butterflies and you'll have extra forage for bees mm. if you leave it to later. But if, if you leave it to so late in the year, to so say September, you get, it, you get a, a return of nutrients to the soil from the dying back meadow, which increases the fertility. And that in turn can increase the rankness of the meadow if, there is, if it's on a rich soil. In the following year so on a poor soil you can have a later cut and there's no long-term harm but on a rich soil it is better to have an earlier cut mm. early July or maybe even into June so they vary vary it from year to year as well and also vary it across the garden so you have some areas which are kept late uncut and some areas which are cut sooner yeah. in the season yeah
0: so some some points some points out of that, so again, so um reducing fertility each year is important, so do you want to tell the- to tell the people at home again, why do you want to reduce fertility i go to the I go to the garden center, we put fertilizer, we get manure on all year round you know why is it well, you're talking about reducing fertility so what's 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 the point of that
1: well, high high fertility favors um a small number of coarse grasses and uh, and what people would consider to be weeds, docks and thistles and nettles, and the coarse grasses are unsightly. So by reducing the fertility, those those coarse unsightly species are at a disadvantage, Mm. and also you allow a, a wider range of species to establish within the meadow, so you have greater diversity, a greater range of species. Mm-hmm. And also high fertility allows, um, allows topping out and lodging. So the vegetation grows tall and flops over. And in doing so, that kills this, the, the low-growing rosette-forming species. Yeah. So by having low fertility, you have a more open structure, which allows a greater range of species to grow. Okay, just coming back to that
0: community, those different layers, isn't it? Those different layers, those different um, uh, growth strategies, and um but yeah, no, it's it's so interesting that again with those coarser grasses, how they how they can how they can um, they can over dominate. So something that that uh, I wanted to go back to as well, you mentioned about varying times of um, you know varying times of of cutting. Um, But also, you know, even within the same garden, cutting areas a bit later, cutting area, leaving an area long. That's quite interesting as well, because again, when you were saying that, I was thinking how that could easily, easily be done on a sort of county council um, basis, because I know plant life. I mean, they've been banging that drum for years, but the plant life, um, you know, initiative to to really reduce or or, or, uh, um, reconsider how we maintain our verges, how we maintain, you know, highway, uh, you know, highway land as well.
1: So yes, with the grass cutting, it tends to be too early in the year, yeah. and uh, it, it's good to leave the verge cutting until September. Yeah, and uh, likewise hedge cutting uh, to to uh, no no earlier than September, and uh, the and hedges hedges cut those no more frequently than once every two years because yeah. with the hedge it won't produce winter berries on its uh, current year's growth so um, yeah. and then in parks and gardens uh, where, where you have a meaty grass and just leave areas uncut if, if you're not making a, a meadow by sowing seeds you could still leave the grass uncut and have just one cut later in the year
0: Mm-hmm. And where you have
1: areas which are not cut at all, they, they, they have the function of providing hibernation sites for uh, invertebrates over, uh, over the winter, particularly species like um, cow parsley and hogweed, uh, nettles, mm-hmm. uh, thistles, um, plants with a hollow stem, they're filled up with earwigs and all sorts of bugs, and that's very important. Overwintering habitat is really important. So having an uncut area of the garden, uh, not tidy, just leave it all, just right, don't deadhead anything, just leave it. And that's really important for overwintering so that you then go into the spring with insects and ready to come out of hibernation as soon as the temperature rises. So can we,
0: uh, can we get the message across today that the new rock and roll was being untidy in your garden because we need we need to be less tidy We need to stop controlling we need to just allow yeah we just need to stop being too tidy in our garden
1: there's there's beauty in natural mess
0: <laughs> i've just <laughs> sorry the way i'm laughing because that is like that's like the headline from the podcast i um, that's that's the lovely that's a lovely soundbite but there is isn't there if you yeah. look at i think if you uh, I think we've all probably been more connected with nature. Uh, present company excluded, probably, but over the over the over the sort of COVID lockdown, where we all we've all reconnected with it, and it's that it's the minutia, the beauty, the minutia that we, we we've missed. Uh, but if you just look at it, you know, it's um, there is so much going on right underneath our um, underneath our noses. Yeah. So so Donald, um, thank you very much for the podcast. That was being. Really fantastic. Um, so where can people find out more about uh, the great work you do at Emma's Gate and, and sort of, yeah, give us a bit of background on that?
1: Um, uh, well, we have a a, a seed catalogue, which is, um, I don't know, if you can see that.
0: The Bible, <laughs> yes, the absolute Bible,
1: yeah. <laughs> and, and a website, uh, dot com, And um, just, just, just give them a call or an email and um, uh, any, any questions you have or any seeds you, you want, we just ask us and uh, we're, we're there to advise and help you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Donald. Thanks very much for your time.
1: Thank you. There you